we need some of that knockout gas at our home. So, Don't you wish it was that easy? Wouldn't that be great? You know, having a hard week, just put some of this behind your ear. A little dabble do you. That's another advertisement. But, um, you know, what a wonderful thing. And the truth is that um, obedience is not always an easy thing. It's not for me. It's not for you. Um, but it's, it's part of it. One of the things that I think is really kind of cool to, to look at related to uh, Nehemiah, today we're going to look at one of our values. We've kind of jumped around a little bit with the way that our vision team over really an eight-month period kind of went through all of these things with vision and values and strategy and measures. We've kind of jumped around because we wanted to get the guts out to you, the skeleton out to you quickly. But we're looking at the value really of spiritual growth. And uh, the truth is, I, I, don't, I don't like this. But everybody wants to grow spiritually, they just don't want to pay the price, because the shortcut to spiritual growth is suffering. So if you want to be really godly, and you want to get close to God quick, then you need to go through difficulty. And when you say that, people go, oh, yeah, I'm not signing up for that class. And so everyone who has been through a spiritually difficult time knows that you understand things about God through that that you would never understand when you're walking in the sunny, you know, flowery meadows of life. You've got to go through hardship to understand God. And the truth is that spiritual warfare is a reality. We don't like to think about that because there's some crazies out there that turn everything into spiritual warfare. I ate a Twinkie for, you know, dessert last night because there was a demon that made me eat the Twinkie, okay? So some of that stuff is just whacked out crazy. And you get some folks that get so focused on stuff like that that they forget the gospel and that God wins. And so the answer for us is not to discount that and say there's none of that, but it's not to get kind of wacky and, 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 and see everything as that. And so when we talk about spiritual warfare, it's an unpleasant reality. Um, but one of the things that we know that we want to do is we want to build strong families that can grow through adversity. Because if we don't build strong families to grow through adversity, the minute adversity comes, what happens? I'm out. I'm done. And so we have to be intentional about building a discipleship strategy that helps people to go through the difficulty that will come. Because just because you don't want it to come doesn't mean it's not going to show up. As a matter of fact, Murphy's Law means that it will show up at the worst time. It will not be convenient. It will not be a good time for you when difficulty strikes. And so the truth is when the church attempts to go about expanding God's kingdom, when their passions get inflamed for doing something great for God, there will be, uh, maybe not the devil himself, but his agents. Sometimes people of incredible influence and um, power who will oppose what is happening with great vigor. And that's exactly what we see happen in Nehemiah chapter 4 and Nehemiah chapter 6. Um, you have an extended outline in your bulletin. We are going to go really fast. So, you know, shake your hand, wake it up, get your pen ready if you're taking notes, because we're going to go quick to get through um, our passage together, because it all goes together, uh, both chapters. It's page 344 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have your own copy of the Scriptures. Um, so uh, keep that if you need it. And also, for all of you who uh, read your Bible on your electronic devices, please note the um, advertisement in the um, bulletin about the, the public Wi-Fi that we've got. So if you need to get on the Wi-Fi, you can do that now. Yay, that's great. Um, but let's start in Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 14. God's Word says this. <clears throat> when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and all the powerful men of Samaria. And he said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices and 
try to get some magic to make them rise from the ground? Will they ever finish? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? And then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, if even a fox jumped up on what they're building, he would break it down. Listen, O God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads, and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight, because they have provoked the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had the will to keep working. Yet when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem's Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was being said, the strength of the laborer fails. Since there is so much rubble and we will never be able to rebuild the wall. Our enemy said, they won't know or see anything until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby them uh, said to us time and time again, everywhere you turn, they will attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall and at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. And one of the things that we know as we've journeyed through this story in the the book of Nehemiah is that God's hand is upon what is happening with Nehemiah. From the minute he heard of it to the frightful moment when he made it known to the king what was going on, and the king granted all his wishes. I mean, it was like... Aladdin rubbing the the little lamp. I mean, everything he wished, he got. You want to go? Go. You want wood? Go. I'll even throw in troops to keep you safe in safe passage and give you everything that you need. And then he gets to Jerusalem and he talks to people that have sat in this disgrace, shambles of a city for 90 years. And he says, guys, we need to build. And everybody like rises up as one person and they do it. It's amazing. And even still, despite the objective way that God's hand was involved in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the people who were not part of God's people opposed it. We tend to think sometimes that if, if God's really in it and we're faithful and we do our part, then he's going to do his part and make our life easy. And that's just not the way that it works. As a matter of fact, the more dedicated the people in Jerusalem got, the severer the opposition became. You see that twice when they talked about Samballot in chapter 4. The first time at the very beginning, he's furious Then he's furious, but his fury is different because now he's got a bunch more people to be furious with him. He's not just opposed to it. He's recruiting people. And here's the point here this morning. When when a a church is going about the business of extending God's kingdom, there's going to be hardship. And one of the ways that those hardships comes is that there will be public discouragement aimed at the people. Mass discouragement aimed at the people. Because what we know is that Nehemiah and the Jews have been radically successful. Um, They're rebuilding, they're closing the gaps, but as they are rebuilding the wall, that's not the only thing being rebuilt. With every stone that gets placed, with every mortar that gets laid down, with every gap that gets closed up, with every inch that they get closer to each other, there's a building resentment from the people who don't like what is going on. So you've got a wall being built, and you've got resentment being built. 
And Sanballat, who seems to be the leader of the spiritual opposition, ends up kind of playing his cards, and we find out what a spiritual bully he is. He's not pleased at all. And he really uh, does uh, three things, or really two things with one goal. Uh, The first of these is that uh, these pagans are perpetrators of psychological warfare. They are perpetrators of psychological warfare. When he tried to discourage Nehemiah when he first got there, that didn't work. So now what's he do? He breaks out his WPDs, his weapons of psychological destruction. He is going to uh, show contempt. He is going to mock him. He's like, those dumb Jews. Can you believe what they're trying to do? They're offering sacrifices. Like that's going to give him like some kind of magic sauce that makes like the walls mysteriously rise. Maybe, maybe God's going to help them. Ha ha ha. And so they mock them. They show contempt for the things that they're trying to do. And they're just going, man, what dummies? How unrealistic. And listen, psychological warfare is not powerless. It's not powerless. Have you ever been discouraged because of something you've overheard? You ever heard something you're not supposed to hear? Thank you, Ben. It's terrible, you know? You go, man, didn't want to hear that, you know? And it it provides discouragement. And sometimes all of the zeal that you get just gets sucked out because somebody says something um, unkind, um, unhelpful, uh, maybe not well thought out, maybe uninformed, and then boom, it's gone. And there is no one more than Nehemiah who knows how fragile the Jews are. You know, he almost wants to go around handing out earplugs so they don't hear what Sam Ballot is saying about everything because it's not powerless. Nehemiah knows how fragile they are. They have a big task. They have a troubled history. They have long hours, hard labor. And the more they do it, the more dangerous it gets because the opposition continues to increase. So they begin with something relatively, you know, kind of a long-distance weapon. We're just going to make fun of you from over here. But it progresses from psychological warfare. And what we find out is that these people are unafraid to progress to physical violence. They're just going to stop with making fun of you. Uh, Chapter 4 makes clear, the beginning part of that, that they are not afraid of what God is doing, that they are willing to get involved physically. And as verse 6 says, they built the wall to half the height. And they're making progress. As, As they take every step closer towards their goal, their opposition continues to expand. Because now Sanballat has got like a whole crew of folks that are in this with him. It's not just Sanballat and Tobiah. We've heard of these two turkeys for a while. Now it's the Arabs, whatever in the world that means. But it's, it's um, plural. So it's like a whole league of Arabic tribes that are now in league with Sanballat. And then you've got the Ammonites and the Ashdodites that are all aligned against what is happening here. And so in spite of the significant progress, you've got all these people that basically, if you look at it, Sanballat is a Samaritan who is north of Jerusalem. The Arabs are a league of nomadic kind of desert-dwelling tribes that are south of Jerusalem. And then you've got um, Geshem, and you've got the Ashdodites and the Ammonites who are on the east and west of Jerusalem. Okay, you get the picture here? They are completely surrounded by a culture that is not friendly to them. Does that sound kind of familiar at all to the things that we face today as Christians? And it's going to be very tempting when you hear the contempt and then you hear the threat. It's a little bit easier for us to... Don't want to provoke anything. Certainly God is as interested in my self-preservation as I am. Maybe God's more glorified in your suffering than he is in your peace. Anyhow, they're not afraid to expand to this. And so 
uh, you have to ask the question, why in the world is Sambout so ticked off? Because every time we see Sambout in chapter 4, he's furious. I don't know what a furious face looks like. Anyone know what a furious face? Can you make a furious face? That's pretty good. You know, hair sticking up. and He's got one little weird hair sticking out here, veins. You know, I mean, he's grimacing so bad. I mean, he's like sweating. <clears throat> he's furious. And I think it really comes down to this. We know that Sanballat from history, not from the scripture, from history, he was the governor of Samaria. And for him, as a pagan, there's really only three motives for why anyone would do anything. There's the pleasure motive, there's the profit motive, and there's the power motive. And it's pretty obvious that this backbreaking labor that Nehemiah is involved with, there is no pleasure in building up this wall. So it must mean that Nehemiah is out for profit and he's out for power. And so as a governor of a neighboring region who is the leader of the pack right now, a strong Jerusalem is not in his best interest because it diminishes Sanballat's power and prestige if Nehemiah gets some. And so he's all in. He's like, you're going to steal some of my glory? I don't think so. So we're going we're gonna to go. And it makes it very clear what their goal is. In verse 11, he says, they're not even nut. We're going to sneak in and we'll be able to kill them before they even know that we get there. They're not just going to rough them up. They said the only way they know for the work to be stopped completely is for the workers to be killed. And who are the workers? All y'all. Men, women, boys and girls. It's the entire city of Jerusalem. It's everybody. And so their goal in all of this is the postponement of spiritual pursuit. And they almost succeed. Did you hear verse 10? Verse 10, and if, um, depending on what kind of Bible you have, verse 10 may be set off because it's a, it's a, it's a poem. It's a song. And so as they are working and doing this backbreaking labor and they're hearing the mockery and the contempt and then they hear about the threat of physical violence, they come up with their own little chain gang song. You know what a chain gang song is? You know, That's the sound of you know, working. And, and, and they have a song that they sing saying, you know what, there's so much rubble, rubble we're getting weak, there's no way we're going to rebuild. And so here's what happens when there's opposition. If you're doing something hard and now you are opposed... The hard work is hard just by itself. You add opposition on top of it, now hard work has gotten harder. They've almost succeeded. And when it says, are they going to be able to restore things from the rubble, this is not like an adopt-a-road thing where you're picking up beer cans on the side of the road. This is a busted-down wall. It's boulders that they're moving. So it's not like, oh, I'm so tired of picking up beer cans on the side of the road and picking up trash. No, they're not picking up trash. This is heavy, exhausting huge work that they're doing. And so the early exhilaration, which was they say, yeah, let's build. Not realistic. But we're told that the plans for um, these opponents of God's people are thwarted in verse 12. It says that while, while all of these people that are opposed to them were malicious in their desire, they weren't that smart. And so that's one of the things that God, he's always gracious. If you've got enemies, he might give you stupid enemies, and that's good. And so they're, they're like making these plans to come and attack and what they don't realize is there's all these Jews that don't live in Jerusalem that live where they're at. So they hightail it to Jerusalem, and you saw what they said. They say, hey, we're going to tell you time and time again. What do you think that means? Nehemiah's like tired of hearing them. Every turn, they're going to get you. You have to go around that corner, they're going to kill you. They're, they're coming, they're going to get us. And, and, and here's the thing, like, is what they said true? Yes. Is it helpful? No. Because these are Jewish people who are part of God's people who should be about... God's glory in Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall. And they're passing along factual information that is wisdom, that masquerades as wisdom when it's really unbelief. 
you know, hey, Nehemiah, I know you think God's going to get this done, but we've got an enemy out there that we've got to watch out for. And they're more scared. They, they fear the enemy more than they fear God. Nehemiah says, listen, I can't have you saying that. I can't have you saying that. Thank you for reporting it. But the attitudinal gloom was not helpful. So God's people here, chapter 4, bad situation. People um, aligned against them. People discouraged. How in the world is the work going to continue? Well, it doesn't get any better in chapter 6. Turn with me over a page to uh, Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And here we're going to see a a second thing that um, very closely related to the first one, that there will be public discouragements aimed at the people. But when spiritual warfare really wants to up the ante, there will also be personal attacks directed on spiritual leaders. Look at what God's word says in verses 1 through 14. When Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at that time I had not yet installed the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message, Come, let's meet together in the village of the Ono Valley, but they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. Sanballat sent me this same message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations and Geshem agrees that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you were building the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king. And they've even set up uh, prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf, there is now a king in Judah. These rumors will eventually be heard by the king. So come, let's confer together. I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying, They will become discouraged in the work and it will never be finished. But now, my God, strengthen me. I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was restricted to his house. And he said to me, let us meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let us shut and lock the temple doors because they're coming to kill you and they're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? How can I enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke to me. Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired so that I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin, and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they have done, and also Noadiah the prophetess and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. How do we see personal attacks on Nehemiah? Well, the first thing is it's a good idea if you're a leader engaged in a big project to try to avoid getting assassinated. That's, you know, general rule number one, don't get killed. It's not a good idea. And so the walls are up, chapter 6, verse 1. The walls are done. But Nehemiah says, I haven't, like, installed the the doors in the gate, so it's not done. Well, Sam Ballot knows exactly what's going on, too, and he's like, all right, we got to intensify our attacks because when the gates are up, it's done, we're done. So he says, um, here's what we're going to do. Let's, let's, have a leader, let's have a leadership summit. Let's get everybody from this area. You know, if it's good for Jerusalem, it's good for the Ashdodites. Let's get them together and let's, let's do this. And, and basically, they, they're like, Nehemiah, we know that you know that we have opposed you. But look at the great work you have done. You have won. Let's meet together and reason this out and bury the hatchet. 
And what's Nehemiah know? He gets this nice, it's monogrammed, it's like, it's like a wedding invitation. You know, come to the, you know, appropriately named leadership conference in the Valley of Ono. What's your clue there? You know, oh no, run away. So Nehemiah's like, Nehemiah's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm just, I'm not going to go. And he knows their politics. He says their plan was to harm me. He knows that if he goes, they'll kidnap him, they'll kill him. Or while he's heading over to the valley, there's an army sneaking around him heading to Jerusalem to attack while he's not there. He's kind of the linchpin for a lot of what is happening here. Number two, don't get sidetracked by slander. You know, uh, the first four invitations to the leadership conference don't work, so now they send an, an open letter that is under the guise of trying to be helpful. You know, the king's going to hear about this, so we need to confer and get our story straight and see what we need to talk about here. But the truth is it's an open letter. It's been read dozens of times before it, before it got to Jerusalem. He is spreading a false and malicious rumor to try to get Nehemiah to come. He can't, Nehemiah is not willing to come, so I'm going to get Nehemiah to come so I can, you know, work my plan out. So he slanders him and sends this letter that's kind of appearing to kind of quell rebellion, and the truth is all it's doing is fomenting it and offering it more. He offers a believable alternative. Why is Nehemiah doing what he does? We know it's because he's zealous for God's glory, not for his own pocketbook, not for his own prestige. But they twist it around because the spiritual answer can't be the right answer. For Nehemiah to go all this trouble, to, to be involved in all of this work, it can't be that simple that he just loves God. Well, it can and so he basically just brushes off the slander. When somebody says something stupid to you, okay, you don't always have to answer back. And one of the things that Nehemiah knew was, I'm just not going to reply. You ever replied to somebody that, like, the minute the words came out of your mouth, you know you just shouldn't even waste your breath? Did that ever happen? You ever regret saying something to somebody that just, like, cross the whole conversation off. Nehemiah doesn't. He does not get sidetracked by slander. Because ultimately, <laughs> Sam Ballot may be grasping for truth. He doesn't know what the truth is. He's automatically a liar, grasping for something. And then letter C, um, you have to, as a leader, be very careful about what's going on, and you need to make sure you distance yourself from disqualification. That's the whole idea about what is happening with this whole interaction with this prophet, Shemaiah. Shemaiah is confined to his house. He is, he's kind of placed himself under house arrest because he's afraid. You know, you get all these big bad people around. They're coming. Evidently, he has been a faithful prophet up to this point, and they're coming to kill him. He's in trouble, so he's locked up in the house. And Nehemiah goes to him, Shemaiah, why don't you like, come out to the marketplace? No, 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 they're, they're coming. They're coming to kill, and they're going to come to get you, and they're going to get you tonight. Perhaps you'll get amnesty if you go to the inside of the temple and hide yourself there. Man, that sounds really good. Except Nehemiah realizes he's dealing with a really strange breed of prophet, the for-profit prophet. He realizes really quickly that God didn't send this prophet. This guy has been hired by uh, Tobias and by, um, by Sanballat to try to get him in a con- uh, kind of this urgent kind of, you need to make a decision right now. What are you going to do? You're going to run? You're going to stay? You're going to fight? You're going to go? You make a decision. Let's go hide in the temple. I'll go with you. Like, like that makes it okay for a lay person who's not a priest to go into the temple of God? So Nehemiah's going, wait, 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 wait. Should a man like I flee to the temple? I'm not a priest. It's not the Day of Atonement. Nobody's supposed to be in there. You want me to go hide in the temple? He realizes really quick, you've been hired by my enemies, and you're trying to get me out of concern for self-preservation to sin. 
And if I violate God's laws for my own benefit, this God who I've claimed, I'm claiming to serve for this great project, it's, it's messed up. So Nehemiah is wise enough to avoid uh, disqualification. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of things about Nehemiah that are really good uh, for us to look at. Nehemiah is a leader. If you're involved in business in any sense, there's some good stuff here. Uh, the Bible's not a business book. It's a book about God and his glory and people who are willing to sacrifice and work hard for uh, the things that God wants. And so when we talk about this whole idea of um, values and um, values dictating what you do, everybody has a set of values, okay? Everybody has a set of values. Your values will determine how you spend your afternoon today. And so if, like, it's a holiday weekend, if you've, like, burnt it this weekend, you can go home and take you a Sunday afternoon nap. Um, I don't get those very often, but man, they are sweet. They're awesome. Sunday afternoon naps are the best. You know, they're great. And so like if, you're, if your rejuvenation is the highest value on your list, you know what you're going to do, you know. Um, if uh, hospitality, Mr. Scott, wherever he went to, is, is his priority, what's he going to do? He's going to have people over to his house for lunch today because that's what people do. That's their value and that's their gifting. And so we see Nehemiah's values through his words, his actions, and his attitudes. And I think that there are four that are very helpful for us here. The first is that he was, he was a man who was regular in his practice of prayer. At least four times in chapters 4 and 6, we see Nehemiah just kind of responding with this spontaneous prayer about stuff that's going on. He's getting mocked, and they're being, uh, they're, they're being shown contempt in Nehemiah chapter 4. And in verses 4 and 5, instead of replying back to the people that are mocking and showing them contempt, Nehemiah doesn't even talk to them. He talks to God. Does God hear how we're being disgraced? And ultimately, because this is your work, you're being disgraced. So I'm not asking you to punish them because of personal vindictiveness. That would be sin. I'm asking you to work to execute your justice because they're blaspheming your glorious and beautiful name. So God, remember them. And I'm going to trust you to take care of stuff. And I'm going to get back to work. Gets his hammer out and gets back to working on the wall. No problem. Contempt? Mockery? I'm going to do what I know I need to do. The hard part is, Nehemiah's prayer in verses 4 and 5, it's really tough. He's like, you know, send them to be plunder, send them to be captives. Um, we, because we are still sinners, we identify with sinners more than we identify with God. And we kind of like it when we sin to be graded on a curve. There will come a day when we will praise God for his justice as well as his mercy. We just don't do really good at that right now. But he's saying here, God, you're going to execute justice and we're going to praise you for it. Uh, chapter 4, verse 9. When he hears that they're coming to fight against him, it says in verse 9, there's just this quick little aside. And so I prayed a prayer to God, and I stationed, uh, I, I stationed people in the low parts of the wall to be like our guards. He didn't go, let's have a prayer meeting, and God, you hear their threats, you take care of it. He didn't, he didn't like sit down and do nothing. He said he prayed, and he put a guard out. He didn't just kind of get so pious that he sat on his hands and did nothing. He did something. It's a beautiful marriage between understanding that God's in charge and that you have a responsibility to do something. You know, it's not, God, you just do it. You know what? God might do it through you putting an armed guard in the gaps in the wall. And so prayer and action. Nehemiah always interweaves, intermeshes this life of action and this life of prayer. Chapter 6, verse 9, they send the open letter. You know, you're planning to become a king and you're, you've already got the prophets ready to declare your kingship. Um, the whole idea of this um, open letter is to discredit and to discourage. And in chapter 9, 
uh, you know, Nehemiah says, you know, you're saying all this to intimidate us and you're hoping that we'll become, become discouraged. And then the very last couple of words are his praises. But now, my God, strengthen me. I love that. That's awesome. Because what he's saying is, all right, God, I understand their motive. They're trying to intimidate. They're trying to discourage. They're trying to shut us down. And so what they have intended to weaken us, God, I'm asking you to like swing it around and use it to strengthen us. Help us to see that opposition from ungodly people is the greatest compliment that we can get. And so God, take what they intended for evil and don't let it weaken us. Let it instead be something that strengthens us. And in chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 14, as he concludes, again, he prays for God to remember his opponents. Uh, number two, Nehemiah practiced great discernment. Uh, chapter 6, he goes to Shemai the prophet, and he figures out really quickly, uh, this guy is not on the up and up. He's been hired by Tan- uh, Tobias and Sanballat. How in the world did he know that? How in the world did Nehemiah have the discernment to know? Prophet comes to him and says, you know, hey, here's, here's what's up. Here's what you need to do. Most people be like, yeah, that, that makes good sense. Yeah, I'm going to listen to the man of God. And Nehemiah goes, heck, no. That's bad advice. As a matter of fact, it's terrible advice, and you're not on the right team. You know, you're wearing the jersey, but you're, you're playing for them. How in the world did he know that? Really simple. He knew God's word. Nehemiah knew he was a false prophet giving bad advice because he knew the word of God. God's word said only certain kinds of people were allowed in the temple at certain times on certain days, and this guy's telling me it's okay for me to go. And so here's the thing. There, this, is, this is a good question for you to ask, okay? But I'm going to give you an answer that is good all the time. People come and say, man, I, you know, I, got this, I got this thing I'm dealing with. I really want to know God's will. And what I'm fearful of, the reason people don't know God's will is they don't know his word. The Bible claims for itself that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness, not everything we want. And so, you know, you want to know what the scratch-off numbers are for Lotto. God ain't going to give that to you because it's what you want. It's not what you need. God, I want to know, should I take this job or should I take this job? Should I move to this house or should I move to this house? Pick one. Which one's going to help you be more obedient to God? Here's an idea. Pick the one that's closer to church. That might be a good idea. And so when people say they don't know God's will, I don't have a category for that. Because if you know God's word, you know his will. And here's the thing that's great about Nehemiah. Number one, we said he was a man who was consistent in his practice of prayer. Number two, he had discernment. Why? Because he knew the word. He was in the process of regularly checking in and walking with God every day. Spending time in the word and spending time in prayer and walking with him closely. Number three, one of the things that I think makes Nehemiah such a dynamic leader is he was wise in how he dealt with people. We didn't read chapter 4, verses 13 through 21, but this is immediately what happens after they hear about all the the bad stuff. All the people will come in to kill him. And so Nehemiah knows that the work can't continue with the current tension that they're feeling. Uh, So he does, he takes some action to ensure that the work happens. And so you see some things that are uh, really cool here. I love this phrase. This was an old seasoned pastor giving advice to a, a young guy in the ministry. And he said, what you need to do is you need to pray like everything depended upon God, and then you need to preach like everything depended upon you. That's ah, a pretty good wedding of God's sovereignty and man's action. And so Nehemiah says, God help us, they're coming, 
chapter 4, verse 9, and I'm going to post a guard. Well, here's what he did. And um, I'm fully aware that anytime we gather for worship, it is an NRA convention. Um, so those of you, those of you that are whatever, um, here's what Nehemiah did. He turned all of Jerusalem into like an armed camp. He said, I want you to have a shovel in one hand, I want you to have the sword in the other. If you've got a hammer in one, I want you to have a bow in the other. If you've got a trowel in one hand, I want you to have a shield in the other. So he like armed Jerusalem to the teeth. He put people in the, the gaps that were declining. I think it was awesome because when he put people in the gaps, it, was, it actually reinforced the work that was being done because they're going, hey, there's not as many gaps as there were last week. And hey, look how tall the wall is. That wall wasn't here two weeks ago. So by putting people by family in the gaps, he was ensuring that they'd fight well because what dad's not going to fight when his kids are at stake? But he's also reinforcing the work that's actually happened. He created a night watch. Nehemiah slept in his battle dress and his armor. He kept the trumpeter nearby because he said, hey, when you hear the sound of the horn, you come to the horn. You come because that's where the fight is going to be. He created a rapid response force that's going to move where they needed to. And he accelerated the pace. It says that they worked from the minute that the sun came up till after the stars came out. He was wise with his people because he knew that the work on the wall was not going to continue unless they knew, I can work on this wall and I don't have to worry about that gap over there because Troy's got the gap. So that's his job. I can focus on mine. And he kept the work going. But number two, related to this, his wisdom in dealing with people, he didn't waste time on his opponents. You know, he gets this prestigious invitation to be the guest speaker at this leadership conference in the Valley of Ono. And he goes, I don't think so. Nice try. He knows the zebra doesn't change his stripes. And if they've opposed the wall, they've opposed him before, he knows they're going to harm him. So Nehemiah doesn't revise his agenda. He never stops the work. They mock him. They show contempt. They don't stop. They uh, threat of physical violence. He doesn't stop. They um, uh, accuse and slander him. They don't stop. Uh, they have this intrigue and they get a prophet. They get an inside man to try to trick him. He doesn't stop. He, he, he doesn't waste time on his opponents. The thing that makes Nehemiah, I think, most precious to me is that he was single-mindedly focused on God and his goals. Single-mindedly focused on God and his goals. You see, it's easy to shrug off distractions when you know it's what's most important. It's easy to say no when you know that something else is more important. And so for Nehemiah, the work on the walls was critical. Was he concerned about foreign policy? Not a whole lot. That can come. But we're going we're gonna to get things fixed here first. He's not going to let the work stop. Basically, he says, hey, thanks for the invitation. I'm really flattered. But I got something more important going on, and I'm, I'm going to stay with it. Nehemiah knew that his enemies were going to persist. And so what did that mean he needed to do? He needed to persist more. Because here's the thing. If your enemies persist more than you persist, guess who wins? They win every time. So you have to persist longer. And the truth is, the more trouble you face... Doesn't that mean that the goal is that much sweeter? When, when your blood and your sweat and your tears are involved, there's a bigger party when you get done. And so Nehemiah knew he had to press on and be focused on what it, was, what it was. There was a spiritual quality to his work. More than simply what he did, who he did it for, and how he did it was important. And I love in verse uh, 14 of chapter 4 what Nehemiah does here. He, um, he basically takes people to his secret source of power. How does Nehemiah deal with all of this all these problems. They're outside the walls. They got an inside man. They're inside the walls. And so he takes them to his secret source in verse 14 of chapter 4. He says, I made an inspection. I stood up and I told the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, do not be afraid. And at that moment, who does Nehemiah sound like? 
It sounds like Jesus. Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. You think you're in this battle by yourself? We just sang about God fighting for us. And we're going to shake in our boots the minute these paltry Arabic tribes say that they're going to stop the work? No, if God started it, nothing is going to stop it. And so he takes him to his secret source of power, and it's his complete and total confidence and trust in God. Nehemiah knew a really, secret, a really special secret, that one plus God is always the majority. You don't need an army. You don't need, you don't need a, a political action group. You don't need a senator. You need God. And if you've got God on your side, you can face opposition the same way a good swimmer faces the waves. Head on. Plows right through them. Because with God on his side, there's nothing to stop him. God on your side enables you to work a little bit harder. Well, in the same way that Nehemiah's values get expressed in his action, his value of building the wall superseded every other goal that he had except for allegiance to God. He was not willing to save his own life by hiding in the temple. The works on the wall were the thing that he valued. In the same way, uh, churches have to ask what's most important. What what, What are the things that drive and motivate the things that we do? And so as we've been talking about our motivations, we spent, oh goodness, I don't know, uh, the vision team, I think, spent, Ed, you said it the other day, was it 20 hours? 20 hours? 20 or 30 hours over two months kind of thinking through our values, and we had like 168 on a wall, and we're like, all right, we can't have 168 values. How do we distill them down into something that's actually memorable? Because <laughs> nobody's going to remember 168 values. And we came up with these five. We've already been talking about, about one of them. And the first is that we want to be a church that's centered in Christ, centered in Christ. And while Christ's name is never mentioned in the book of um, Nehemiah, I think there's a really cool analogy that works. You see, when we talk about building the walls in Nehemiah's day, the walls were not just an issue of uh, defensive perimeter. The walls were an issue of separation. They were an issue of separation. God lived in the city. And in the book of Ezekiel, when, when he builds the grand temple, the end times temple, the walls are exceedingly thick. Because man who is a sinner, God who is holy, those two meet and it's not the right way. Somebody loses and it's not God. And so in the same way, when we talk about being centered in Christ, we may not be building a wall in the same way that Nehemiah does, but God calls his people to be in the world, but not of it. We're called to be separate. Not, not that, you know, we don't go to Walmart because, you know, bad people go to Walmart or they sell bad things. Or no, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We're supposed to be a separate, holy, set-apart people for God. Number two, we want to be a church that's grounded in God's word. That's a value that drives what we do. If we don't have, if we don't have God's word, what do we have? What are we doing? And uh, that's, as a matter of fact, how Nehemiah had such great discernment was he knew the word. And uh, the truth is, God's word will take a more central role in just a couple chapters in Nehemiah. And I think in our day and age, when you look at where we have come as a culture, you know, you could ask people 50 years ago what the Ten Commandments were and they'd get it. You know, nowadays you ask, um, you ask Sunday school teachers, you know, if Joan of Arc was Noah's wife and they'd say yes, you know. Um, it's just bad. And so, like, we're in a different culture. So the truth is, when it comes to Bible study and being kind of grounded in God's Word, we need to do more in the future than we do now. If, if we do what we do now, we're going backwards in 20 years because the culture's asking questions that we're not even prepared to answer. And so when we talk about being a church that's grounded in God's Word, we want to see people who really understand what God's Word means and whether it's okay in 20 years to marry a clone of yourself. 
can I marry my sister if she's a clone? Uh, I didn't mean to go there. Just, we just moved to West Virginia. Sorry about that. Um, you know, but there are, there are issues that now we have to face that, like, our grandparents have to think about. And so now we got to be grounded in God's Word, and we got to do it better and deeper and faster than previous generations have done this kind of stuff. Number three, the one we've talked about today, we want to be focused on spiritual growth that doesn't tap out at the first opportunity. If you really want to grow spiritually, you will grow through adversity. And the truth is, every Christian who has been through difficult times will say that they have learned more about what it means to walk with Christ in the trials than they ever did outside of them. Number four, we want to be a church that's committed to missions. That's part of who we are. And here's kind of an interesting little tidbit about the Nehemiah story that's kind of awesome. All right, Sanballat is a Babylonian name. He's known as the governor of Samaria. 38 years after the walls get done, so you know, four decades. He is recorded in secular history as this elderly statesman in Samaria. And here's this really kind of interesting tidbit of history. It's not in your Bible. He has two sons, and they both have Jewish names. How do we know that they're Jewish names? Because they end with a Yah, which means Yahweh. So he ends up having two sons that have names kind of extolling the virtues and the beauties and the excellencies of Yahweh, God of the Jews. We don't know that Sanballat had ever changed his stripes but it could be that through Nehemiah's civic project of building the walls and revivifying and reviving the city for God's glory, that perhaps Sanballat's very own sons became followers of the God of the Scriptures. Because even in something that seems like a little civic project, there is God's glory and there is missions that happens all the time. And lastly, we'll talk about this next week, we want to be a church that's motivated by love. Love for God, love for people. And you definitely see this in Nehemiah's leadership. He has a love for God that calls him to a back-breaking work, but he has a love for people that calls him to use his leadership with great wisdom and delicacy. So the challenge for you this morning, it's not a um, when, it's an if adversity. Uh, it's not an if, it's a when, because adversity will come your way. You can wish it away, you can stick your head in the sand, you know, you can do whatever, it's going to come. Here's, here's a couple questions for you. Are you growing through the challenges that come your way or are you merely enduring them? There's a world of difference between the two. Are you simply surviving? Or are you growing closer to God through the challenges that come your way? Listen, I don't know what the challenges are for you. Um, I know what they are for me. And I, I don't want to trade mine for yours. And you don't want to trade yours for mine. I mean, that's the path that God has for you. But whatever it is that's coming your way, how are you getting through that? Number two. All these distractions happening while Nehemiah was about this important business. Hey, come to this meeting. Hey, let's, let's do this. Hey, there's danger. Hey, there's this going on. And he did not allow distractions to sidetrack him from following God. And so I know all of y'all are ready to like, call up and get the oil of obey stuff. Um, how many of you are willing to admit you're distracted when it comes to following God? There's stuff that happens. It like, becomes an obstruction. Now you gotta, you're like, oh, I'm just... Tired. I don't want to have to work at it. I just want it to happen. Well, no, it happens because you work at it. And so are you distracted? If you're a student, guys, let me just say, you're, you don't exist to bring home a good report card. Mom and dad will be really happy. You exist to honor God with the way that you do your work and the way you treat people. Moms and dads, you don't simply exist to, you know, whatever it is, you know, the golden anniversary, whatever. You're not just trying to get to an artificial mile marker. 
You're to love each other as Christ loves the church. Lay your life down for each other. Encourage each other to godliness. If you're an employee, you don't work to keep your boss happy. You, you, you work to please an audience of one. If you're an employer, you don't just want to have happy employees. You want to point them to Jesus with the way that you live, the way that you lead. Children, don't just obey your parents because you don't want God to give you like a spiritual whammy. Do it because it glorifies God and it's the right thing to do. Don't be distracted in your following of God. Whatever, uh, whatever shoes you put on, whatever pants you pull up, walk in them and follow God and say no to the distractions. Nehemiah is an excellent example of being single-mindedly focused, knowing where his value is. Last, but certainly not least, when the stressful situations in life come, do you give in to hatred and mean-spiritedness? Or do you sense God's power and provision flowing through you in the midst of difficulty to cause you to do what you would not naturally do? Naturally, I'd punch you in the face. Supernaturally, I'll shake your hand. That's what you do when the pressure's on and things get bad. You don't revile back. You deal with it. You seek to glorify God, and you feel his power, and you know his provision for helping you do what needs to be done. Because here's the great thing. With Nehemiah, we see very clearly that God is more powerful than the most wicked opponents we will ever face. But the truth is, when it comes to our own personal spiritual growth, God is also stronger than your most strong, sinful desires. He can protect you from your opponents, and he can protect you from the pet sins that you need to say no to. And it's awesome that we serve a God that wants to make us as strong as steel, ready to face the challenge, because we don't know what the challenges are you will face tomorrow. But God will make us ready for whatever he sends our way. Pray with me, please. Lord, we pray that you will give us a zeal for your glory that helps us to work for your glory. Help us to think very seriously about what our values are as individuals, what our values are as a church. Help us to be focused on the kind of growth that um, is both for our good and for your glory. We thank you for your word and for how you make us wise, not only unto salvation, but for all of the challenges and difficulties that we face in life. Help us to be mindful that we walk through, in some ways, a spiritual minefield every day as we deal with people. And help us to be wise and gracious and kind and loving in the ways that we deal with that. In Jesus' name we pray.